Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, welcome to Making Data Simple. Al Martin here on a very cold day in Kansas City, something like 36 degrees if you're in Fahrenheit. Today, I have a very distinguished guest. As you guys know me, I like to uh, delve into leadership. We don't always talk all things data, but it all comes around. uh, Data is the center of the universe for me anyway. But I like to talk about leadership, self-improvement, how to be a better leader. So I'm honored and humbled to speak with uh, Yancey Strickler today, who's a writer and entrepreneur. We're going to chat about bentoism, among other things. Let Let me see if I can give a little bit of an intro, and then I'll turn it over to Yancey himself. Uh, Like I said, he's a writer-entrepreneur. He's the founder of the Bento Society, co-founder of Kickstarter, a distinguished fellow at the Drucker Institute, an author, uh, this could be our future, a manifesto, a more generous world, uh, the author of The Idea Space. And if that was it, then I could stop there, but it's not. So you got to keep going and co-founded the artist resource, The Creative Independent, the record label eMusic Selects. He's an angel investor. Yancey, do you sleep? That's my first question for you. Yeah, deeply, deeply. I wear myself out each day as best I can. But yeah, that was wonderful. Thank you. I would ask you to introduce yourself. My name is Yancey. I'm excited to be here. My background is as a originally a music journalist, a writer kind of at heart. And then I spent a decade plus being a startup founder, starting Kickstarter, being the CEO of Kickstarter for four years. And the past three years have been on this quest of really re-examining how we define our self-interest and thinking about the new sorts of values and ways of valuing that are both necessary and now possible in a digital world. And so my work in the Bento Society is it's a project that's exploring those things. It's, It's exploring the future of value. And it's also really pushing on this idea that we really define ourselves today by a very limited notion of self-interest. And instead, we use this very simple mental model of the bento to argue for a very different way of thinking about our choices and what the right outcomes are. I'm just pulling on some threads and very fortunate that they've coincided with things that you also care about. And, And in particular, what I'm focused on at the moment is really talking to people who work in the field of data, especially to just understand from them, what are they seeing? Like, what is the acceptance level of new kinds of metrics? How are our choices changing? And especially as we get into climate change and a lot of our systems are really going to need to be rewired. I think these are kind of the most core fundamental questions that will really dictate where humanity goes from here. We could probably talk all day on a lot of those topics. I mean, look, I spend a lot of my time in data, of course. That's why we're here. But AI, and then when you bring in AI, you bring in bias. And then we got, uh, you know, social issues that are associated with bias. I mean, it's truly a brave new world. But speaking of threads, let me take a step back real quick. You're involved with a lot of things. What is the, the thread that brings you together? What's your brand? Probably my core skill is being curious and being able to show people the matrix. Being a a music critic turned successful startup founder, CEO, business person was interesting because it 
put me in a world that was not my natural context, a world where I felt a fish out of water. And there's a lot of downsides to that, to be sure. But the upsides are you get to look at a lot of the assumptions with fresh eyes. You know, you look at things and not saying that's obvious because I've had a business school teacher, you know, tell me that before. I look at things and ask questions, understand why do we do things that way? And with Kickstarter, from the very beginning, us as founders, we're really focused on the idea that creative ideas were only getting funded by the powers that be if they were good investments. You know, someone would put money into a movie or a book or an album if they thought it was going to be a hit, which meant that the cultural products we were surrounded by were ones that satisfied this one value of will it make more revenue? Will it produce more money? But yet, as a creative person, you know, making money is like just a, a tiny motivation for all the reasons why someone creates something. Kickstarter, people are putting money into projects ahead of time, and they're not getting any financial upside. It's not an investment. And that was intentional. The idea was, could you create a separate ecosystem where ideas could be supported just because people liked them, because they thought the tech was cool, because Kansas City needs this, you know, whatever the myriad of legitimate reasons to do something, but none of which are ultimately about maximizing a financial value. That was the core thesis behind Kickstarter. And, and through that, billions of dollars have changed hands, you know, 150,000 plus creative projects exist in the world. And at the heart of that is really questioning, what is that core value assumption? Is our core assumption that to be better means to have more money? Or is that value assumption, could that mean something else? To give you an example, I was speaking yesterday with a woman who talked about how you know, how she's feeling you know, discouraged about the world and, and about how the American dream is that our kids will do better than us. And she's like, I don't know how that's supposed to happen with inequality and all these kinds of things. And my question to her was, yes, I, I understand that argument. But let's say the next generation has a divorce rate of 20%, whereas the previous generation had a divorce rate of 45%. Would we say that they are doing better than their parents? I would say they are. I would say you're doing better at like a fundamentally crucial thing, you know, having a strong partnership relationships. But yet today, we don't think of that necessarily as being better or more successful. We are still on this prism of a financial yardstick for everything. That I think is the core idea that interests me. You know, financial value as our value peg, the gold standard being what it is for the you know past hundred plus years makes plenty of sense. You know, it's not easy to count things. It's quite expensive. It's costly and, and money and, and things that create wealth have been very much worth counting. But in a digital age where the cost of measurement is almost zero, where we can create incredibly intricate passive measurements of activity of, of human behavior, suddenly the values we can identify as being material to our decisions or being the outcomes that we want are suddenly very different. We can actually choose from a number of different things. And we're still in the early stages of this. It's, it's quite awkward. And when it happens, it's controversial. This is what is opening up for us uh, for the first time. You know, to me, that has been just my thesis, my theory of the world that, you know, no matter what I try, what my ideas keep coming back to. And I truly believe that this is a pivot point where our notion of value is greatly shifting the challenges we face and the fact that we are a networked organism for the first time creates fundamentally different relationships. And kind of the map to the world that we've had for the past hundred years is being made irrelevant. And we are slowly realizing it. There is truly, I believe, a need for a new way of thinking about the world. And I think that 
circumstances are, are forcing our hand. And fortunately, I think that there's a lot of great ideas and there's technology that makes it actually practical for the first time. I understand what you said there, but let me ask a question. Revenue, return on investment uh, in terms of financial terms, that tends to be what I call a lag metric, meaning your, your vision can't be revenue. You, nobody gets up in the morning and says, ah, I'm going to go make some revenue today. Here I go. What I term is everybody wants autonomy, mastery, and purpose uh, in some form. You've got to have, you got to have empowerment. You got to be really good at something and you've got to feel like you're making a difference. So back to where you started with Kickstarter, if it's not an investment, which is different, how do you define success or how in Kickstarter did you define success? I got to believe there's a business model around there as well. What we're starting to move into is this language is more loaded than it is, but what I believe are kind of post-capitalist transactions. And by that, I mean, so for Kickstarter, yes, Kickstarter is not a nonprofit. Uh, we are a, a public benefit corporation, so a for-profit company that has in its legal founding documents that the company must balance creating value for shareholders along with producing a positive benefit for society. And we wrote a charter that lays out the 15 things that we do. As the, the board of the company, the CEO, the people in charge, they must make decisions that balance those things. What this practically means is that you operate in a way where you satisfy your financial needs and goals. You know, you, you seek to operate in the black. You, you seek to have a healthy margins, a healthy business. However, the values that you are maximizing for might not be money. You know, it might be that you are satisfying a financial need, but you are maximizing for reputation. You're maximizing for growth in a specific category. You know, for us, a lot of what we focused on was to what degree are projects from less commercial areas launching on Kickstarter? Kickstarter is a better mousetrap for technology and hardware, things that already have a lot of success and have a lot of money behind them. Is cool. Kickstarter made a big impact there, but maybe those are things that would have happened anyway. One of the ways we judged our success of the mission is how well are we doing at supporting modern dance projects, theater projects, comics, things that are more fan-oriented. And so really what you get to is this balancing of multiple values. You say, okay, we want to grow financial value as much as we can while also not harming these other things or perhaps growing these other aspects of what we do more. And these kinds of transactions are increasingly possible. And there's an example I write about in my book of pop star Adele. And when she goes on tour, her tickets end up getting sold out immediately and fans have to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars more to see her play. Adele wasn't comfortable with this, so she found a, a startup in the UK that had built an algorithm that would measure how loyal a fan was to her as an artist. And they use this algorithm to analyze social media data, Spotify data, et cetera, to identify the top 20 percentile Adele fans in each market. Then they specially invited those people to see the show, putting a very low face value on the ticket and putting no restrictions on whether it could be resold. And the bet was that if we algorithmically identify the most loyal fans and offer them a ticket for less money, they won't resell the ticket and it will create a fundamentally different experience. And this ended up being true. Less than 2% of those tickets got resold and Adele ended up playing shows for these super fans. And what's amazing about this is that this was not an altruistic choice by Adele. This was not a, a charitable choice. In fact, it was a mathematical algorithmic choice. Let me find these people. The trick here for Adele is that she is actually maximizing for her self-interest. 
Whereas, say, the Rolling Stones are charging as much as they can for a ticket, and they're maximizing for their financial self-interest, what they can earn. Adele is thinking about her self-interest a bit differently. She's saying, the best way for me to achieve my goals as an artist is to maximize for the desires and needs of my most loyal fans. That's what will create long-term value for me. That's what will create loyalty. That's what speaks to who I most deeply am as an artist. And so now she can do something like that and use math and replicate this across many different markets and create basically a post-capitalist transaction where she is satisfying a financial minimum. Hey, I don't want to lose money on these shows, but what is important to me is another value. And so it's, it's chaining these things together and creating different kinds of exchanges. And this, I believe, is what we're going to see more of and what is ultimately going to be a native kind of transaction of the internet. That's a fantastic example. Obviously, she's investing in her future. And by the way, 2%, that's like negligible. Those are people that uh, had something they couldn't get out of. <laughs> yeah, totally, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> but I presume that your experience with Kickstarter led to the interest in you uh, essentially creating the Bento Society. You know, while I was CEO, I had this idea. I would love to create a post-permission organization where our mission our values and our goals are so clear, both like specific and broad enough that it just gives everyone in the organization permission to act on them. And to me, the ideal organizational type and structure would be one where that's true. I was constantly iterating towards that. Each year I would try a different playbook for the year. Here's a physical card we have with us to say what we're doing and always trying to do that. It was only after I stepped down as CEO that the idea for the bento came to me. I stepped down as CEO and, and I spent the next year starting to work on this book and thinking about really wanting to understand what is the history of how we've defined rational uh, self-interest? What is the history of how we've defined value? Like I want to understand the philosophy of these things. I was about eight months into that process when one day I was just scribbling in my notebook and I thought, what does self-interest look like? How do we imagine that today? And immediately I just drew the hockey stick chart. A graph or whatever it is that you want is sloping so fast, uh, the line goes up and to the right. This is how we think of self-interest today, like me getting mine. But as I looked at that picture, I had this strange thought where I thought, you know, this x-axis showing time, of course, it keeps going into the future as far as we might want. And I just sort of drew that line out farther. And then this y-axis measuring self-interest, you know, power, money, followers, whatever it is you want. Well, actually, that line keeps growing too because... As your self-interest grows, it actually ends up impacting other people. And so I drew that line farther. And suddenly this hockey stick chart, which had looked like you know this dominant icon, instead there was just a, a tiny slice of this much larger picture. And I looked at this larger space, ended up drawing it, turning it into four simple boxes. In the bottom left is now me. So this is the space where hockey stick graphs live. This is what I as an individual or as an organization want to need right this second. Then on the bottom right, the next box in this two by two is future me, what the older, wiser version of me wants me to do. The future me becomes real or not real based on the choices we make each moment. And the top left of the two by two, there is now us. So the people in my life who I count on and who count on me, my family, my friends, my coworkers. And then in the top right corner, future us. Our kids, if we have them, or the future versions of ourselves or the, the future for everybody. And as I drew these four spaces, I thought, 
Of course, you know, every decision we make leaves a footprint in all these things. Like every choice I make affects the people I love just as their choices affect me. And and I could suddenly see where these spaces that I'd had a hard time articulating before uh, were so apparent. And after I drew this simple two by two chart, I thought, what is this a picture of? And I just wrote next to it the most vanilla description possible. I wrote beyond near-term orientation. And as I looked at what I wrote, I realized it was an acronym for BENTO. My wife had shown me a book that talked about bento boxes and it had yeah. mentioned how the bento honors a Japanese dieting philosophy called Hadahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. And I thought the bento is the same idea, but for our values and choices, a way to not just make decisions maximizing for right now, but to leave space for tomorrow and the other people who matter. I mean, is this actually a, uh, a methodology you use to when you make decisions? Yeah, I've used this for, I'd say, every decision for three plus years now. I use it in a few ways. I mean, one, so I'm looking at my bento right now. It's hanging right in front of my desk. Um, and I have written in each box my core values. So I go through a process of just answering what does my now me want to need and how am I my best? How is it that I am sort of in a flow state? It's when I show people the matrix. My future me, what is my older, wiser version of myself telling me to do? It's telling me to create harmony, to bring dissonant ideas together. As, as a child of divorce, it's something I, I very much reach for. My now us is about a deep focus with a few small friends, having very strong core relationships. And my future us is about building a better matrix. And so every choice I've made, I, I ask this to the bento and I ask each box individually, like, yes or no, what does this fit? What do you think I should do? Does this seem right for me? Uh, a good way to visualize how helpful this is, is you can imagine a smoker asking their bento, should I quit smoking? And so they to do this, you ask each box one by one. So their now us box would say, yeah, we're your family. We hate that you smoke. We want you to quit. Uh, the smoker's future us says, think of your kids. What if we smoke because of you? Like quit today. The smoker's future me says, I want there to be a future me, like let's quit. But when the smoker asks their now me, should I quit smoking? That voice says, no way. We're addicted to nicotine. Like this is going to be terrible. Why would we give this up? And you know what? That now me voice has a rational point of view for its own experience. That is the case. Quitting smoking is going to suck. When we see this wider expanse of our self-interest, we can put that voice in context. So the challenge we have today is that we listen, we, we really only understand the now me voice. And so we are constantly making decisions, optimizing for those short-term desires, even when they have extremely negative effects on other parts of our life or our future prospects. But we just haven't learned how to make those spaces as real, as rational in our mind for all kinds of obvious, very legitimate reasons. But climate change and humanity as a networked organism fundamentally changes this. In a world where we are all individuals, and that is the atomic unit of the universe, then we are hopeless against climate change. It will be a fatal blow that will destroy the world, and there's nothing we can do. However, in a world where we come to see our shared obligations in a different way, in a world where uh, the network makes us feel more empathic and understand and create ability for cooperation beyond what humanity has been able to do in the recent past, then we have a chance. And so I think circumstances are going to force this evolution and it's already happening. And fundamentally, this, this will reflect a larger sense of self. Like 
even in COVID, I keep thinking about, you know, to be self-reliant in COVID. It means having a good support network. It means having skills. It means knowing how to research and learn things. It, it means being reliant on farm workers and supply chains and so many other things. And the truth is, that is what self is today. Self is not just me alone sitting in this chair. Self is my network. Self is my reputation. Self is the things I know how to do and can exchange with others. And these are the things that we are relying on and that make us who we are. And fundamentally, our, our concept of who we are has not accounted for these things as clearly. And it's hurt us. And so to me, the bento is as dumb and as simple a tool as possible, a two-by-two, two, a simple two-by-two, two. now me, future me, now us, future us. I mean, it's about as basic as you can get. But it fundamentally changes what you think of as being a, a, a good or bad outcome, what you think of as being as in your rational self-interest, and it also fundamentally changes what's valuable. You know, it, it creates a values pluralism that is very real and something that we live inside of. Let me take a step back just to make sure, because I want to kind of summarize. Is it fundamentally about reframing values into the new world? Yeah, I go a little bit lever deeper. I think it's about reframing self-interest. Because I think if you've reframed self-interest, then that changes values. Everyone's values are rightly held and are justly earned and are based on their experiences. And that it is not really possible to change someone else's values, nor should we really want to. However, what we can do is make ourselves more aware of our full values and seeing the larger picture. I have this trust if people are exposed to the full spectrum of their self-interest, if our notion of self expands, that people will do what's right for them and that things will work out. So, so to me, value is like the next step up from self-interest, but it, it starts at that level a little bit deeper. How do you get started with this then? Because everybody has different values. Yeah. Is that it? So two things. Um, I host a community with 1,000 plus members. On Sundays, we do what's called the weekly bento, where we draw a blank, one of these boxes, you know, now me, future me, now us, future us. And we just ask ourselves, what should I do in the next seven days in the week ahead? And we answer from the perspective of each of those spaces. And so what happens is that now me is going to tell you all the errands and work stuff you need to do. Your, to -do, your normal to-do list shows up in now me. Your future me is going to remind you, you know, I, you mentioned uh, mastery, autonomy, purpose, you know, those Daniel Pink drive phrases. Like those are things that show up in future me. And so the, your future me, the things that show up for me each week are like, be bold. Don't be afraid in the things I say. Like, try to represent this larger picture. The now us, when you write down your now us to-do list, it's who are the people in my life I need to be in touch with this week? For that one, I picture everyone I love sitting around a big dinner table. And I just sort of think, who do I feel least in sync with right now? You know, who, who do I want to reach out to? And it makes, for me, calling a friend every day like a thing that's on my to-do list. And future us, you're asked to, to think, okay, for the things I say I care about, for the larger picture that's important to me, what practical things can I do this week to actually make a difference? And those are things like I can learn about something or I can teach something or I can give money or time to a cause that I care about. But so for all of us who are bent to us, every week we schedule and sort of lay out what we're going to achieve each week using this framework so that you get the, the now me, like the stuff you got to get done. But it puts in this larger context of, well, here are the larger things I'm working towards, and I need to make sure those things are there. 
there's a lot of elements you've outlined that I have part of my everyday practice, but I don't have it in this framework. By example, you know, I've got my mission statement. And by the way, I tweak it every so often, certainly plan each week. And even today, I got to call mom. I guess my one question I have, is there any one or two, three just nuggets you can throw us in terms of tips and tricks that you've learned? Like, I'll give you a couple of mine. Every so often, you know, something will bother the hell out of us. I call them vampires that get into my head or whatever. I've got a habit of I'll just write it down and I'll move on and then come back later and look at it. And inevitably, when you come back later, it's like, that wasn't that bad. And here's what I need to do next time that happens. I start each day with some grateful affirmations. I think that does help me. I do retrospectives, almost like an agile process. If you're in development or something every day to say, hey, what worked, what didn't. But you're right. Then at some point in time, you get completely off the rails and I have to like resync. Any other nuggets that you share that when you're meeting with your, your Bento Society that you've come up with that are part of your practice? We'll sometimes do something called a brain trust where it'll be like 10 people in a room in a Zoom room and someone will have an, an issue, something they're facing, and they'll have two minutes to share whatever that issue is. And then when they're done, they have to turn off their video and mute themselves. And then for the next 12 minutes, the other 10 people will debate what that person brought up. And that person is just meant to listen and take notes and then come back and, and share a perspective. I'm constantly experimenting with myself. I'm a big believer in embodiment. An example of this, uh, when I started working on my book, which you know, is a, an argument that the fundamental value system of the world today is wrong. And so I, I faced a lot of thoughts of who the hell am I? to write a book like this. Like I'm nobody. Why am I even trying? Like got the book deal, the thing, everything I was wanting to happen was happening. And I was just struck by this incredible crisis of confidence. And my wife just said, you know, what, whatever it is you need to do, this isn't working for you. So you can't just complain or wonder about it. You need to find something else to work for you. And I had this immediate flash to this story I'd read about the Beatles and how in 1966 was the year the Beatles released Rubber Soul. Uh, they wrote, recorded, and released Revolver, and they wrote and recorded Sgt. Pepper's all in one year, 1966. And, uh, and that year was also the first year the Beatles took a vacation. When they went on vacation, it was about, they had six weeks where they were separated, and they all went separate ways. And Paul McCartney, for his vacation, decided he wanted to drive across France and Spain by himself. And this is the height of Beatlemania. So to do this, he adopted a disguise. He slicked his hair back and he wore glasses and he grew a mustache. And for six weeks, Paul drove by himself around France and Spain and was unrecognized. And for Paul, this was a revelatory experience. You know, he'd had he'd been Paul McCartney, the Paul McCartney since he was, you know, 20 years old. And here he's getting to be somebody else. And when Paul got back to London after his trip, he immediately called the other Beatles and told them about what had happened and said, we can't make another Beatles record. It's going to be too much pressure. We all need the freedom to be someone else. And this was the idea that ultimately led to Sgt. Pepper's, where the Beatles had to become a different band because the pressure of being the Beatles was too much. I love this story too, by the way. I'm a huge Beatles fan. It's amazing how much music they put out in such a short amount of time. Like, Can you imagine three records in one year? Hey, man, this is very fascinating. I got to ask one question that's a little bit unrelated, but it comes back to data. And it's an article that you wrote on, you characterized data. You said data is fire. 
And if you remember that, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. A lot of times we talk about data being oil, and that is getting a little old. Uh, you mm-hmm. say data is fire. Just to kind of wrap this whole thing up and coming back to the concept of making data simple, could you talk mm-hmm. to that real quick? Early humanity's relationship with fire is really interesting to think about, where you know fire was something that could not really be tamed. You needed to provide warmth. You, you know, eventually humans could use it to cook food once they gotten more of a hold on it. But once humanity tamed fire, all kinds of things happened, like our human biology changed because we could eat food with more uh, protein and calories. So our, our brains got bigger. We had more of a defense against, you know, animals and, and other creatures, things like that. And so ultimately, taming fire, taking this dangerous resource and harnessing it, learning how to use it, is what unlocked civilization. That, that was one of those, those key moments, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. And I believe that data is the same. That data today is extremely dangerous. It can be used extremely harmful ways. It's also full of immense potential. And as I, as I think about the challenges we face today, the collective issues, you know, our ability to tame or understand data, I believe will dictate the course of human history from here. If this is something that we become quite adept at measuring things, we are very good at understanding what we're measuring and what we're not measuring. We, we have the right mix of you know, a desire for objective truth while also having uh, the humility to know that we're only measuring representations of some aspects of something. That levels up human beings uh, to such an extraordinary degree and allows us to make uh, cooperative, collaborative uh, decisions, uh, allows us to, to shift our tools uh, to support ourselves in new kinds of ways. And that we are right now in this real linchpin moment where the digital age makes measurement trivial and it allows us to affect ourselves and each other in ways that were not possible before. And there is a very bad version of this story that's possible a lot of dystopian sci-fi movies are about that. But if we were to imagine, for me, any path where humanity gets fundamentally better from where we are now, data is going to be at the heart of it. You know, the, the most important metrics of the 21st century haven't been invented yet. They're coming. They're coming. And, and so to me, where we are right now is sort of trying to get our hands around this new resource that is also quite dangerous this is the core challenge. And I think that what happens, especially in the next uh, 10 to 30 years, is going to be extremely important. That's something I'm writing about, talking to people about, excited to talk about with you all today. Uh, one last question as a uh, extension to what you you were just talking about the next 30 years. So with climate, with social, with the, the technical, the, the digital revolution, data, political, where do you think we're headed? G- give, me, give, me, <laughs> give me your prediction. What do you think the next five, 10 years are going to look like? The overhauling of the global infrastructure to reduce CO2 emissions is going to be an enormous project. I think that there's, it's a strange way to think about it, but I I think that this might be one of the great wealth generating moments in history. You know, we might look later generations might look back and feel fortunate that they got to be the ones to solve climate change because of just how much was uh, upended and overhauled in doing that. You know, I, I don't expect that to be a smooth process. Uh, and I, I expect there to be um, 
yeah, some some dark years ahead of us for a while. There's a book, a, a recent sci-fi book called Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, an amazing sci-fi writer forever. And it's a book about the next 30 years that it, it's just about climate change. And it is, a, it is an optimistic book. It tells the story of how humanity solves this issue. And it's quite plausible. And even the things that we're seeing this year and the things that the Biden administration is doing and the, some of those seeds are being planted. So that's a great book that shows one way of doing it. And ultimately, their solution, part of it is about inventing a, a new form of currency, a new form of value that is based on carbon, that's based on CO2, and, and sort of shifting from a gold standard to a carbon standard and reengineering our systems, you know, not around financial growth, but instead on the protection of the ecosystem that allows financial growth to happen. And so you know, I, I think it's going to be messy, but, but I think we're going to get there. And, and I have a tremendous faith in the generations that are coming. And I, I think that they're going to step up because there's not going to be another choice. Optimistic or optimism. I love it. Bentoism. Let's see. We have uh, a book that everybody needs to read. Could be our future, a manifesto for a more generous world. Uh, I love the the goal is to be 80% full. If I could only just have the capability, <laughs> but the goal is to be 80% full, leaving choices and leaving some of our food for tomorrow. The Beatles story, fantastic, man. Thank you for being on. Where can folks reach out to you? Yeah, you could find me at whystrickler.com or bentoism.org. The invite I would give to folks is that if you want to check out one of these weekly bentos, we do that on Zoom where we set our priorities at Sundays at 12 Eastern. Uh, you could sign up at bit.ly slash weekly bento. You could just leave your email address and you'll get an invite when the next one's happening. But yeah, if you want to just check it out, meet some people, get a sense of what this is, that's the best place to start. That's a huge Zoom, is it not? Uh, no, it's like each week it's it's anywhere between 30 to 60 or 70 that will come to that. Other people are don't meet the, meet the right time zone and so we share videos afterwards. But yeah. Great. All right. We will also put that in the show notes. Again, thank you for being here. A lot of times I ask, whole different sorts of questions, but I think you answered them inherently to the dialogue we had today. I'm to understand you also have your own podcast, right? A podcast called The Idea Space that um, right now is focusing on this question of data is fire, actually speaking to people who work in uh, the world of data. And if folks here are interested in, in reaching out or maybe have some things to share, I, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing from them. And in fact, this weekend, uh, we're, or right now we're publishing a roundtable that I did back in December called What to Measure and What Not to Measure, where I put an open call to data professionals to come be part of an experimental roundtable discussing kind of the ethics of measurement. And we ended up having an amazing all-star panel of people like CEOs, executive directors of nonprofits, like very, very interesting people. And we had a, an amazing hour and a half discussion about how to know if what you're measuring is real, um, the challenges of language and measurement, uh, all kinds of stuff. And so that's being published soon. And I'm going to be hosting another one of those roundtables as well. So for folks that work in, in data and are interested in these questions of the future of data and values, like that is what I'm about. And, and that is what I'm talking to people about and, and trying to explore as best I can. So yeah, we'd, we'd love for folks to check it out. And, and if they'd love to share some wisdom, I, I, I'd love to hear it. Fantastic. Once again, Yancey, thank you for being here. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Uh, it was a great, it was, it was great to sit here and, and listen to, to all your stories and, and Bentoism, et cetera, like I said earlier. Thanks again. If you, if I could return the, the favor to be on your podcast, happy to do that. 
And uh, again, thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Thanks so much. And for everybody listening, as always, uh, thank you for her listening to the podcast. If you could reach out at almartintalksdata at gmail.com, we'd gladly take any ideas that you have. And until then, I will see you on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Out.